If, if I can, by the way, my name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. It's really good to be with you uh, this morning. I don't know. I've, I've been here in the building, I don't know, maybe for an, an hour plus. But when I drove in, it was, it was frosty out and really cold. And so if you're here warming up uh, and, and defrosting a bit, this is... Uh, I've, somebody commented, like, it's, it's a fair change to be freezing when you wake up because we're going to get sun in the afternoon and I can already see sun coming in. So that's a very, very welcome thing. Um, hey, also, uh, Connor... Uh, just shared, obviously he, he had twins, he and Chloe had, had twins, that's now three boys in their home, uh, which is, I can speak from experience, just whole lots of fun and damage, and uh, that is now, they, so that, that's two kids, and I think if I'm counting right, in the last four months there's been five new babies, um, which is just like rapid fire, that's, that's awesome, good work and great, and um, there was a couple born I think in, in October, and then... Uh, Connor had, had two, uh, so he contributed the most, and he and Chloe, and then Nick and Maya had theirs, their daughter, Elizabeth Daphne, uh, a, week or a week ago. It was a week ago? Am I doing the math right? Okay, yeah. One week old. So, anyways, lots of babies. That's good stuff. Connor also shared just a thanks for, you know, how, how folks within a church community kind of care and encourage and give and that kind of thing. And I just need to share with you a, I'm not going to tell you who it is because um, I haven't asked for permission, but I got a text from a person in our uh, church family who is going through uh, a battle with cancer. And one of the things they're not able to do is to take care of their yard. And we just had a ice storm that trashed any of our yards, if you have a yard, and uh, had another person within our church volunteer to go over and do, do a little help cleanup. And they wrote a text to me afterwards and said, so-and-so came over and worked here for like eight hours. And I said, thanks, but it just doesn't seem like enough. I said, thanks about a hundred times, but it just doesn't seem like it's enough. And it was just such the sweetest moment to capture that experience of one person giving to another person out of sheer just, just love and generosity and just sacrifice and just to give and the difference that it makes. And so uh, for those of you that are thinking about contributing or helping in some way to some other person, a need that you see, um, it makes a huge difference. Thank you for that heart. Thank you for that willingness. Please jump in, help, serve as you see a need. Uh, it, it just makes a huge difference. Um, actually, and that would be a great one to add to this list. We're in a series that we're calling We Are a People Who, uh, and then filling in that blank with a number of different things. So that would be a great one to do, to who serve and, and love one another. That's not for today, but that's a great idea for a coming up week. Here's the three that we've, we've done so far. And the reason that we're doing this is that uh, if you've been around for the last number of, for the last month as we've been work, working through this, is that the reality is, is that our our minds, our brains, we are constantly filling in this blank. We are a people who, or I'm a person who does this, who is this, this is my identity, this is how we live and behave. We're constantly filling that in. And so we wanna take time to say, who is God calling us to be? What kind of people and how do we look and behave and how do we show up in this world? Now, part of our vision as a church is that we are compelled by the love of Jesus to live distinctly different lives. And in saying that, we're saying that we both have a call and a desire to look different than the world around us. That's, that's part of what God is doing in and through us, in and through every local church that's following him. So we filled this in. The first week was love, obey, and imitate Jesus. The second week was to practice grace, to have, a, have an understanding that God looks on us and sees us as valuable and special and extends undeserved favor to us, grace. And then the third week, last week, we heard from Carl, uh, and he shared about how we see God. 
but we are a people who see God, all of who God is, who is bigger than we can fully comprehend. And he left us with a, a question within that is, do we want to worship a God that we create and define and imagine? Or do we want to worship a God of the Bible who says he's beyond our imagination and yet is near and present and close to us? And so we're going to do another one this week, but before we do that, would you just pause with me, take a deep breath, let's pray and open up scripture together. God, as we are gathered here in this room, as we're watching online or listening or watching at a later time, God, I just acknowledge and am aware that we, we come from all different sorts of experiences this past week uh, and even this morning. And that some of us enter into this moment and we naturally are smiling and we feel uh, good and we've got good experiences and memories from this past week. And there's others of us that are barely holding it together, that our minds are racing, it's hard to focus. We come from painful experiences or we're in a season of grief right now. And so God, would you help each and every one of us to acknowledge you for who you are, that as we sing to you, as we open up your word, as we listen to your voice, that you're the God who created the entire universe and yet knows us by name and knows exactly what we're feeling and experiencing right now. That as we've sung already, that your beauty never fades, that your promises never break, that you are present to us, that you want our best, that you are for us, and that you are powerful enough to do something about all of that. And so would you be glorified and worshiped in this place? And Holy Spirit, would you work and move and have your way right now? Would you heal? Would you comfort? Would you convict? Um, would you move us? And would we hear your voice and your prompting and follow? And Jesus, as we look to your word, as we uh, celebrate and declare your resurrection and your offer forgiveness in our lives, would we hear your, your strong voice, your gentle voice, your true voice, as you call us forward to be the people that you've designed us to be. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So it was, uh, it was nine years ago, uh, but some of you uh, probably remember Riley's first cry. Um, it, nine years ago, but you probably remember that moment when, when she first cried. It was, it, she was an infant, so it was more of a, of a coup. Um, and uh, she's also not, not a real person. Um, she's, a, like a, she's a character in an, in an animated movie. Uh, but some of you remember when she cried for the first time. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? Inst Boom, right there, Inside Out. Inside Out is a, is a Disney Pixar movie from 2015, and it's about this, this, this girl that's born, and she's in the Midwest, and, and she uh, moves, grows up and moves uh, to San Francisco. And the whole movie is about the emotions that each and every one of us feel and experience that, that we have inside of us. And they, they pick five kind of primary emotions. But her first cry, or her first laugh, or her first coup is really significant. It's a significant moment in this movie. And uh, it, it, it depicts this thing, and in, in, again, in cartoon version, in, in, in animation, uh, but, but paints this wonderful picture of what causes joy, of what joy looks like, of what is experienced. She she laughs for the first time or coos for the first time, smiles when she sees her parents looking at her. 
And the depiction is of inside her brain, inside her head, there's a control center. And there's one character inside her head. And that character walks up, has got blue hair and a smile on, on the character's face. And she walks up to the control center and, and touches it. And what we see on, on Riley's face is her eyes open up and look at her mom and dad who are smiling and beaming back at her. And she smiles and laughs or, or coos. And it's this picture of, of joy being the only thing in her head. And it's the first thing that's there. And it causes her this connection with her parents. And her response is one of, of goodness, of joy. It's more than happiness. It's, it's joy. If you watch the movie, if you've seen it, what happens next is some other characters come in. Some other emotions show up. Uh, uh, sadness shows up. And immediately there's a, there's a cry on Riley's face. And then there's uh, fear, and I don't remember the exact order, but there's disgust, which has to do with broccoli, which I think we would all agree with. And then there's anger, which uh, a few of us are familiar with. Joy, sadness, fear, disgust, anger. Primary emotions, some adding their shame, hopelessness, or despair. There's others, ones that kind of slide into the top tier of emotions that are just kind of hardwired in our humanity, in our brains, in our who we are as human beings. But that first laugh or that coup, that connection with her parents comes from, from joy. And we've talked about joy on and off for the last number of months. In fact, there, we did a, a whole talk on it, Connor did, uh, back in Advent when we went through the themes of Advent, hope, love, joy, peace that lead us up to the Christ candle and celebrating the birth of Jesus. But joy is one of those. And we've talked about joy a number of months. And the, and the reason is, is that, that joy is foundational and primary and so significant to who we are as human beings and being who God has created us to be. And so this picture that we have in this film that Disney made actually is a really accurate picture as, as brain science has developed. And then as we compare it to scripture, there's this convergence of truth, of things that resonate and are screaming to us that joy is so important. And we ought not to let, leave it aside or just think about that it might happen, but actually to pursue it and to find out and understand why it is so significant and understand. So what I want to do today is to add into this blank of we are a people who seek and share joy. And I want to do three things today. I want to first is just understand, like, why is joy so important why do we keep talking about it? Why do we keep coming back to it? Why is it important Do we understand it? Secondly, what does the Bible have to say about joy? And I want to look at two passages kind of in detail of experiences of joy that maybe you're familiar with or maybe new to you. And then finally is I want to talk a little bit about how we grow in our own joy as experiences as individual, but more importantly as a, as a church as a, as a whole of how we can step into that. So first, uh, why is joy so important? It's, uh, there's, there's a couple reasons. One is, if, if you just even think, again, last, last uh, December as we were working through Advent, uh, joy shows up all over the place in the, in the, the story of the birth of Jesus. And one of the most um, well-known ones is uh, when the angel shows up in Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 10. The angel shows up and says, uh, I bring you good news of, of great joy for all the people that there's news about something, which is that Jesus is being born, and it's going to bring joy. So there's, there's, there's joy in this. And, and so joy is part of, of the Christmas story. We see it in Scripture there. And another place that's maybe perhaps even more familiar is, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And there's this place in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, that lists out the, the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you know Jesus, 
You have the Holy Spirit in you, which again, some of you might be really familiar with that. That might be a new concept of what does that even mean? But, but Jesus is alive in you through the Holy Spirit. And you're alive in a new way because you've put your faith in Jesus. And one of the things that is supposed to just flourish out of your life, that's just supposed to come out naturally, not forced or disciplined or really work hard for, but just, just, just supposed to come out of your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These nine characteristics are just supposed to, to come out. And, and again, I, I mean, most of us are like, ah, that's not, you know, I, I get a little hint. I get a little like flash of one of those every once in a while, but that's, that's not like who I just exude day in and day out. And for those people that we know that do do that, we're drawn to them and want to be around them. But that's a fruit of the spirit. Joy is one of those, but it is a, it's a fruit. It's not something that we can just get and, and tack onto ourselves. It comes out of something. And as we learn more and more about specifically about brain science, and maybe you're sick of hearing me say that or quote from a few books that I've been reading and deeply influenced by the last couple years, but, but as, we, as brain science has advanced over the last two to three decades significantly, one of the things that we, we know is that, that joy is actually like fuel for our brain. And think about it this way. When one of those other emotions sinks in and starts taking over the control center of our brain and pushing the button or pulling the levers, if it's anger or if it's disgust or if it's despair, we're actually not who we want to be. That's where struggle comes in. That's where difficulty comes in. When those other emotions take over, but when there's joy, what we find out is we're actually more of who we're intended to be. We're more ourselves when joy is in the center of brain, when we're fueled by joy. Another way to think about it is that uh, when another emotion comes in, when we experience something uh, traumatic or difficult or painful, um, how, how soon we're able to return to a place of subtleness and joy reflects our health and even our maturity. And so think about it this way on a... On a um, uh, for those of you who are parents, or if you can remember when you're a child and you, and you threw a fit, and maybe you got what you, you uh, wanted through that fit, or maybe it just continued on and you never got what you wanted. But you, you grew past that at some point. Or if you didn't, you were recommended to go get some help, or you lost a lot of friends, or the person that you were dating said, we're not dating anymore because you throw a fit, and that's immature. You don't have control of yourself. You're not good get to a place of settledness. When you return to a place of joy, and we can actually train ourselves to be able to do that, to move off of the emotions such as anger and despair and disgust and fear. And fear of all of those is one of the ones that competes most with, with joy. That when we have a lack of joy in our life, when there's a, a low level of joy, when our capacity for joy or our ability to return to joy is really, really minimal, fear begins to fill that space. Fear, and we have uh, all sorts of ways of dealing with fear, some that are very healthy and some that are wildly unhealthy. And even as we look in Scripture, we see that, that fear and joy are, are at times mixed right together. One of the great pictures in the, in the New Testament is on Resurrection Sunday, there's some women running to the, or the men are running, the women have already gotten there. The women are there first. And the women are at the tomb and realize that Jesus is, is gone, that he's resurrected. They encounter an, an angel. And there's this wonderful picture of them realizing that Jesus is alive. And it, the, the, the verse says that afraid, 
yet with joy, they run back and tell the disciples. That there's this mix of, of joy and fear. But as, as joy diminishes, fear tends to take over that space and rule our minds and our behaviors and our feelings, what we experience. And so joy, joy actually is able to keep fear at bay. When fear takes over, anxiety spikes. That we end up focusing on, on pain. We become focused on when the other shoe will drop, so to speak. What's the next bad thing that happened? That's not how we're intended to live and function. That's not where our focus is to be. Another way of saying it is that's not what God wants for us. God designed us to experience joy, and it's the fuel for our brains. And that's both what brain science is telling us, and it's what Scripture calls us to over and over, to be a people who are joy, joyful. We've, we've thrown out some definitions of, of joy, and I, I came across something this week that said, um, uh, an author was, was writing, and, and it's, uh, it's in a book called uh, Four Habits of Joy-Filled People. And he said this, trying to define joy is a fool's gambit. Uh, it's like parsing a joke. So if you have to like explain a joke, it's no longer a joke. Um, or it's like trying to diagram love, which, which again, I'm, I'm sure there's a few of us out there that have tried that and feel like we've gotten close and then try to you know, explain it to somebody. And they're like, yeah, that's not working for me. I don't get that at all. You don't, we don't diagram love. It's, it's an emotion. It's how we feel about somebody. It's, it's hard to categorize and fully describe. Or he, he said it's like trying to um, take a sand castle and take it home. Like, that's, you've never done that. That's never happened. Like, it just falls apart. And so trying to define joy is kind of like losing it through our fingers. It's hard to, it's hard to wrap our, our minds around. Take a look at this. This is a, this is a helpful description of joy. And it, it, it's kind of long, but, but listen to it. Joy is the twinkle in someone's eye, the smile from deep inside, the gladness that makes lovers run toward each other, the smile of a baby, the feeling of sheer delight that grows stronger as people who love each other lock eyes, what God feels when he makes his face to shine over us, and the leap in our hearts when we hear the voice of someone we have been missing for a long time. Again, this, this feels like we're trying to diagram love. It's understandable, but you begin to get the sense of what joy is in this description. And each and every one of those phrases, of those description in that long sentence, there's something that's that's tied that's similar to all of them, that ties them all together. It's relational. That joy is relational. Joy is something that we feel with another person, from another person, in connection with another person or with God. That joy at the fundamental level is relational. There's a definition that we've used. We've thrown it up a couple times over the last six months or so. Uh, it's from a, an author named Jim Wilder who uh, is a, I think he defines himself as a neuro scientist or neurotheologian or something, and he uses it from a, um, a definition. He takes it from a, from a Dr. Alan Shore, uh, who's not a follower of Jesus, but has done a ton of brain science, and they've come up with this definition. Joy is the experience of someone else's face lighting up when they see you. Again, we've used this before, so this hopefully is familiar to some of you, but it's joy is the experience of someone else's face lighting up when they see you. Again, think back to Riley's first laugh of joy, the character of joy take, touching and pushing the control center of her mind and, and laughing. And there's this, this image of, of the character of joy on the control center looking through Riley's eyes and seeing her parents' face, faces and eyes looking and smiling on her. That when someone else knows us and smiles and is glad to see us, there's something that happens. 
That's the closest thing that we have to say. This is what, what joy is. It's a relational thing that we're made to be in relationship with one another. We're made, designed to be in relationship with God. And we understand that his face is shining on us. It's one of the things that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we talked about practicing grace. We actually have the capacity to practice grace because grace has been extended to us. That God looks on us as valuable and as special. And so when he extends undeserved favor to us, it's one of the reminders that we have, oh yeah, God sees me as special. God sees me. It doesn't just move on, but sees me. And I'm valuable. I have worth to him. When we see that in somebody else's face, there's, it does something to us. It's not just, just joy, one of the, the fruits of the spirit, but it's a vital part that fuels our brains and helps us be healthy and helps us be more of who we are more of the people that God designed us to be. There's this uh, moment in the book of Numbers, which if you've been reading through the, uh, the reading plan with us, we just passed uh, 100 days a, a, a couple weeks ago. I think we're on 120-something uh, right now, 123, 127, somewhere around there. So about a third of the way through, if you can believe that already. Um, but we passed Numbers. And so uh, if you were waiting till we got through Numbers to join the reading plan, green light, you jump on. Um, it's on, on our website. You can, you can get in there and, and join us in and even write and talk to people throughout the week through, through the app. But uh, Numbers, we're past it, but in Numbers chapter 6, uh, there is this moment where the Lord says to Moses in verse uh, 22, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. <laughs> so God's giving them a blessing. God's giving them words. Say this to the whole, the whole of the Israelites. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and to be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. There's something about being told that God's looking on you and his face is shining on you. When he sees me, we, many of us, spend far too much time assuming or wanting God not to look at us because we have a definition and an understanding of ourselves that is different than how God sees us. That's something that comes from shame. That's something that comes from fear. That's not something that's generated by joy. When we go through our day and we hope that God is busy with other people, it comes from a misunderstanding of who God is, how he sees us, and who we really are. God gave words to the leaders of the Israelites who were finicky and disobedient and unfaithful and over and over and over again. They got food delivered to them every day from God and yet they still wanted to go their own way. And yet God says, my face is still shining on you. I still love you. I still count you as special. You're valuable to me. God's face on us, if you only see judgment and you only see disappointment, you haven't sat in that spot long enough to see him smile on you and know that you are loved and valuable and good. God's face shining on us is one of the generators of joy, and that's his idea, not ours. Joy 
is so important because without it, we're not able to be the people that we're designed to be. Not for ourselves, not in relationship with God, and certainly not with others that God's put in our life. That it helps us to be who God has created us to be. I want to look at two places in Scripture, just, just briefly, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, uh, that, that deal with joy, and, and maybe they don't immediately speak to you of joy, but interwoven in the experience of both of these texts is joy. And, and one of them is uh, Psalm 51. Uh, there's over 120 psalms. I don't know exactly how many. I forget, 140 maybe, I don't know, something, 150, somewhere. Lots of psalms. They're great. They're fantastic. They're, they're, they're songs and poems and, 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 and writings. One of the biggies, one of the known ones is Psalm 51. And the reason is that it's, it's, it's just kind of couched in a, in a bunch of drama. David is one of the characters that we find throughout Scripture. Plays a key role in the story of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. David is a key person in Scripture. And he's got stuff where he kills a giant and he's really faithful and he does a lot of good things. And then he becomes king and then he does a bunch of really dumb things. And one of the just phenomenally dumb things that he does is he, he sleeps with somebody that he's not married to. He has an affair with Bathsheba. And then his good friend and prophet Nathan comes in and, and, and has a conversation, truth-telling conversation with him. And David finally repents. What David had done is he'd walked with God for a long time, and then he started walking apart from God and going his own way. Why? So many different reasons. We're not going to get into all that right now. But as, as David does this, Nathan comes and brings truth and says, come back to God. And David comes back and he, he repents. And he pours out his heart in Psalm 51. Listen to these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he is deep in it. He's, he's, he's going deep and writing all, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I know is true about me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. He's starting with God. He's sinned against other people too, but he's starting with God. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. You saw me then. You saw me, God, before I was born. You saw me before the first time that joy touched on the control center and I saw my parents' face. God, you knew me from then and then I have gone and done these things against you. And then verse 7 says this, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Redo me, remake me, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, here it is, the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's something that is missing when I've gone, gone this way. When I've, when I've chosen a path that is apart from you, when I've done things that has caused distance and separation between you, God, and me, when I go in that direction, one of the re results of that is that I know what it's like to lose a connectedness to you that is characterized by joy. 
Joy is gone. I've gone my own way and tried to hide. And all of those other emotions are coming in and running all the control panels. Shame, anger, disgust, fear. Nathan and the truth that he speaks cuts through all of that. And David says, okay, I'm going to come on my knees, a broken man, and say, make me new and reconnect me to you, God. I don't want to be over here on my own anymore. I don't want the fear to take over. I don't want the shame to rule in my life. I want to come back and connect with you and actually experience the, the joy of your salvation, the joy of you being my hope and my deliverer and my redeemer and nothing else in this life. And so I want to come back and reconnect with you. And so will you give me the joy? And he talks about having crushed bones and not literal bones that are crushed, but when we are ruled by shame, it just feels like our very soul is weighed down and pushed down and disintegrating and being crushed. And he said, no, restore me to a place of connectedness to you. I want the joy that we had when I was walking with you and not running from you. In the New Testament, we have a very different depiction where joy shows up. And this is in a very different context. It's with the people who have decided to follow Jesus, but because they followed Jesus, they've actually been persecuted and are suffering and they've been scattered. And a guy named Peter writes a letter to followers of Jesus who are spread all without this region. And he says this to them in the opening sentences of 1 Peter, chapter one, verses, starting with verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Don't let those words all just blend together, okay? Like, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot that's like condensed right in there. Like, Peter's starting this letter, and so he's addressed it to who it's to, and then he just takes off and he's writing, and he's, he's pushing all these things in there. And it's easy to read that and then just to go like, okay, like, get to where you're going to tell us what to do here. <clears throat> Peter is stating things that are true and that are real. And he says, he starts with, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's just like, God's good. That, that, that's where he starts. Praise to him. In his great mercy, he's given us, he's given us new birth or new life and, and a hope. So we're moving from a place of death and despair, and now we're in a place of life and hope. And he says, God did that in his great mercy. And it happened. How did it happen? How were those things possible to move from death and despair to new life and to a living hope? That is able to happen because of a moment in history where Jesus died and conquered death and rose again. So the resurrection happened and now these things are available. So the whole day is new. Everything has changed. The world is different. Not only that, but that can't be lost. That new life and that hope actually can't be lost because it's, it's in an inheritance that somebody who's really, really, really strong is holding on to, and no one else can get it out of his grip. So God's holding it in heaven not only in heaven, but for a time in the future. So these things, life and hope, because they're in the resurrection of Jesus and God's holding onto them in heaven in the future, we don't, have to we don't have to be fearful of losing them. They are absolutely secure. That's his starting place. So you followers of Jesus who are struggling in a land and a time and a culture where nobody is for you, and you're actually suffering, you're not getting jobs, you're getting ridiculed, you're getting moved down on the social ladder because you've claimed the name of Jesus, just know that this life is temporal and there's something eternal that is not gonna spoil or fade or perish, that that is promised for you. So then he goes on, verse six, 
In all this, you greatly rejoice, which I would too, right? I have that. I rejoice in those things, that it's secure, that I have new life and a living hope. You greatly rejoice. You have joy. Though now for a little while, while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. And right there, what we have is the experience of life that brings trial and suffering. And yet at the very same time, there's joy. That trials and suffering or fear, shame, despair, disgust, anger, do not trump joy. That I'm able to rejoice even in the midst of these other things that are going on. That these don't help to all be off the table and gone, but that there is a kind of experience in this life which in the very presence of those other negative emotions, that joy can be present. And Peter is saying, you know what's promised to you. You know who you are. And so even in the midst of grief and suffering and trials and tribulation, you can rejoice. And he goes on in verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which, side note, is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. The, the, the thing that we think is going to last the longest, which is it's gold, and it, it's already been through the fire. It's even better than that, is your faith. May result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Peter saw Jesus. The people he's writing to had not seen Jesus in person. You love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because of your faith, because of your faith that has received grace from God, because of your faith which believes, even at times when you don't feel it, that God's face is shining on you. Because of your faith that Jesus lived, died, was buried, conquered death, and rose again and ascended into heaven. Because of your faith, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Some of us hear that right now, and like the original readers of this letter from Peter, <clears throat> We look to the person next to us and go, do, do you feel that? Like, who, who feels that? Peter is, is stating something that is available to us, and many of us don't feel it or experience, or it's fleeting, that it comes and then it goes, that we know it, but it's in our memory, and we've got we've to reach back for it. But what both of these Old Testament and New Testament texts tell us is that joy is intended to be our experience on a daily basis. It's God's desire for us that we experience joy. And here's, here's the reality. Joy is not something that you can stand up right now and go, I am going to feel joy. Right now. Go. Joy. We can't, it's not like a, it's not something that we can attach to us. It's not an ornament that we can hang on us. It's a, a fruit that naturally comes out of us. It's a, it's a fruit that is, is born out, grows out of us because of what's going on in our life. It, it, let me read it to you this way. <clears throat> we use this, this quote, um, this first quote in, back in December in, in Advent. 
We do not directly choose to be more joyful anymore than we can choose to have lower blood pressure. Does that work for you? No. Like, unless you're Dwight from the office, none of us can control our, our blood pressure just mentally, right? Like, we know that. We get that. The joy and blood pressure systems in the brain are not subject to direct choice. You can't choose to feel joy and then you feel joy. Joy levels are, get this, this is important. Joy levels are regulated indirectly through relationships. Increasing joy will involve improving our relational skills, training our brain, and getting involved in tightly bonded community. There's a promise of joy but the pathway to it isn't just, I'm going to decide to be joyful, or I'm going to read that and go, oh yeah, Peter wrote that. And so in verse 8, it says, I have an indescribable and glorious joy. Oh, there it is. That's the, the tightly bonded community. That God has actually created us for relationship and puts us into places to be with other people. And when we lean into that and do that in healthy ways and grow in that and actually begin to share our lives, what happens is joy begins to bubble up in us. It's how God designed us. It's what scripture tells us. It's what brain science confirms. Filling a person with joy fuels their brain with relational energy. Does anybody need any of that? When our bodies can feel the glow of Jesus' face shining on us, our joy capacity grows. This is one of the reasons that we sing. We sing for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is we sing with the hope that we, we, we realize what is true and how God really feels about us and that we would stand in a room with a bunch of other people and that we would sing and that we would have a sense of like, God loves that person, God loves that person, God loves that person that has such a great voice up there. Okay, if God can love all those people, maybe God can love me too. I'm gonna sing a song that tells me that God loves me and I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit in that for a minute and realize that yet God actually loves me. God's face is shining on me and when Jesus' face shines on me, actually what happens is my joy capacity grows. Our joy grows, our faces shine on each other, which makes other people feel joy. When we throw in some intentional practices to magnify joy, we are on the way to creating a high joy community. We are adding an essential nutrient to replenish our spiritual soil. We are a people who seek and share joy. One of the reasons we do that is that when our spiritual soil, our souls get depleted, we can't be who we're really designed to be. We can't experience what God wants us to experience. We can't live out what Peter is writing and saying, this is what is true of you. This is who you are to be in the places that I've placed you in the first century in cities that didn't want to follow Jesus, that had all sorts of other priorities and reasons for not accepting Jesus. And we today live in a city that doesn't embrace Jesus. And so our soil can easily get depleted. And God places us in relationships and tightly bonded communities to protect us, to help us to grow, to nurture the soil of our souls so that we actually feel more joy and become more like Jesus and are able to live into the reality that Peter writes about, an indescribable and glorious joy, but it takes relationships. Practice builds our joy capacity. So there's actually things we can do. 
providing relational energy to everything else. Our joy capacity can grow in size as we learn to fill ourselves with joy. The, the size of our joy tank grows. The first skills I was taught as a young Christian were to read scripture and to pray. These practices are important and helpful and have formed who I am, but I was not taught how to refill when my tank gets drained. That's words written by, again, Jim Wilder, a book that we've quoted uh, a number of times and some of you are reading or have read called The Other Half of Church. There are practices, there are things that we can do that helps build our joy capacity. But I've talked for too long, so I'm just gonna show them to you on the screen. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna come to this table. There's a book that is right now, I think, on Kindle. It is $2.99, but it's called Four Habits. Wow, that's a, sorry, that's such a bad picture, but it's called Four Habits of Joy-Filled People. Um, 15-minute train, science, Hector to a mirror. I don't know what that says, Um, but it's really good. It's an important thing. Four habits of joy-filled people. Here's four habits. I just want to show them to you. We don't have time to go into them, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry. But again, it's less than $3 in Kendall, and it's a very short book. Calming, appreciating, storytelling, and attacks, attack toxic thoughts. There's actually things where in your day you can stop and, and walk through a mental exercise that will help us to put those anger, fear, despair, shame to the side and go, God, I want to I be open to, to joy and help connect you to, to Jesus to what is true of you instead of toxic lies that we so often believe about ourselves that will help us with appreciation and gratitude return us to who God is and what he's done for us to tell us stories that we can learn from, that we want to do differently, that we can celebrate and repeat because they're good and for our health. But there are practices that we can do. But it's intended to be done in a community with other people. It's how God heals, transforms, and grows us. We want to be a people who seek and share joy that is from God that transforms us and is good for the world. We're going to come to this table, and um, we come to this table because it tells the story of, of what Jesus did for us to make any of this possible, that he gave his life, that his body was broken, and so we take a little cracker that represents his body broken, and his, his blood is shed, which is why we, we take a little sip of juice, And this was Jesus' idea. And so often, again, we can come with a sense of of somber reverence to this table, and we should because of what it represents. This changes all of reality and all of life, the good news of Jesus. And yet, we can also come and see one another walking up to this table as we all walk and say, "I'm I'm a broken sinner, need of grace, and now I am a saint because Jesus has extended grace to me. So it's okay to look one another in the eye and to smile and to say, yeah, I'm coming to this table too. I need this too. I'm changed too because of this. And so if you're more comfortable coming in a zone and not looking at anybody else, that's fine. But can I encourage you to look at one another as you walk down the stairs, as you walk down and stand next to each other in the aisle and wait for this line, or you, you mistakenly put your fingers in the cup at the same time. That you smile at one another. Thank you.